We're in a series in the book of Exodus. Maybe you can turn there with me to Exodus chapter 19 to 24 today. And uh, I'm going to be assisted in the message here with Ann Bauerfeind uh, doing some art as she has done so capably for us before. So thank you, Ann, for being back again today. It's good to see you. Okay, we've been tracking with God, the people of God, uh, whose story is recorded in the book of Exodus. It's really the epic story of the Bible, God taking people out of slavery and bringing them into freedom. And the story is the same in the New Testament, God taking people out of slavery to sin and bringing them the freedom that there is in Jesus Christ. In the book of Exodus, God, in a dramatic fashion, delivers his people from slavery in Egypt, and they escape with God's power in his mighty hand, delivered from Pharaoh and from the Egyptian army by opening a way where there is no way. They walked through the bottom of the Red Sea on dry ground, and God prevented the Egyptian army from being able to reach them. And then God led them through the wilderness, and they had various challenges and misadventures, tests, really. But nobody had explained to them, those are tests from the Lord, and you're getting pop quizzes, and you're not doing all that well on them. They had these opportunities uh, in times of hardship to either pray to God and ask for God's help and to listen for God's voice and to wait for Him, or to moan and groan and whine and complain and argue and bellyache and challenge Moses and so forth. They dealt with thirst. They dealt with hunger. They were attacked by their enemies. They were overworked. And they still, all the way through, had God's provision. And unfortunately, they never learned the lesson. They never passed the test. They never let go of their bad habits to complain and just trust God. Eventually, they arrive at the Mount of uh, uh, of Mount Sinai, uh, down at the base of it, and where where God had showed up to Moses one day in a burning bush and had started his work of deliverance. And so the rest of the book of Exodus from here in chapter 19 all the way through the end of Exodus occurs at this location as God makes a covenant with his people. God has redeemed them and now he wants to give them guidance about how to live righteous, God-pleasing lives. God gives them the law and he gives them the Ten Commandments and he gives them instruction on how to build a tabernacle so he can live among them and he gives them guidance for the priesthood. And God is just so awesome and caring about these people. Look at chapter 19 with me at the tenderness of God as he reached out to the children of Israel. Moses recorded, on the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and they came into the wilderness of Sinai and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. And the Lord called to him out of the mountain saying, thus you will say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. I bore you on eagle's wings and I brought you to myself. Now I've seen some eagles in the wild before up in Idaho and in Alaska, but never around here. Their nests are up as high as possible in the top of a tree or on the uh, top of a cliff, and they use the nest over and over and over, and they add to them each year. So some nests have been six feet wide and six feet deep. And God uses a little one-line word picture here to suggest that God is the mama eagle tending her little eaglets. Now, I don't have much experience with eagles. I have a lot more experience with chickens. 
I mean, in Africa, where my parents were missionaries when I was a kid, my dad and I teamed up to have a chicken business, and just primarily to keep our family in fresh eggs and meat, I thought, and I suppose also to grow a young boy in responsibility and in economics and in caring for something other than himself, but nobody explained those at the time. We were regularly buying one-day-old chicks, which you could buy in Africa. You could buy all male chicks for six pence each, six cents each, or you could buy all hens, all females, for four times that price, for two shillings, but it didn't matter. It's Africa. It didn't matter what you paid. You got the very same thing. It was always a mix. So we would pay the lowest price, and then when they grew up, all the hens were mine, and all the roosters um, were my dad's. And when they started crowing at 13 weeks, the young bantam roosters would start to crow. That's when you knew fresh fried chicken is going to be here soon. And so we'd spend Saturday morning cutting and cleaning and getting them ready. Well, eagles and chickens are similar in some ways. And they both hatch out of eggs. They're both birds. They both have a doting mother if given a chance. They both can reproduce. But, you know, there are major differences. And one of those is that chickens live in fear. Chickens live in fear. And people even ask you a question, a question when they, you don't want to do something. They say, what, are you chicken? I mean, it's a synonym for fear. They never say, are you eagle? <laughs> and eagles fly. Chickens try, but they don't fly. They just flap, and they don't go very far. And mama, you know, eagles, I, I've read about them. They teach their babies to fly. In fact, somebody said, you know, you can find this on YouTube and, and, and watch at eagle cams. And um, by, by taking their, they take their eaglet, and when the day arrives, they've been flapping around in the nest, but finally they put their baby on their back, and they soar to great heights, and then they drop out from underneath them, and this little eaglet is free-falling through the air. Now, I've parachuted one time in a row, and you, you jump out of a perfectly good airplane at 10,000 feet, and quickly you're falling over 100 miles an hour. But you can't really tell how fast you're going. It doesn't feel like you're going all that fast. And you're hurtling toward the ground, which if you hit the ground, the sudden stop would kill you. But it doesn't seem like that when you're way up high and you're just floating through the air and uh, having a good time. And at a certain altitude, the experts have said, pull the ripcord because that's going to slow you down and provide a way of escape. Well, mama eagles will take their, their eaglets up and then just turn them into a free fall, and the little eaglets are flapping like crazy, but at some point, just before a certain disaster, the mama eagle will swoop underneath them and catch the baby on her back and then take it back up either to the nest or up to the top to do it over again and again and again until the eaglet does what a chicken can never do, fly. Eagles were born to fly. It's what they do best. It's what they spend most of their waking hours doing, flying. Now, one time I was at the Air Force Academy as a reserve chaplain, and somebody said, you know, bragging on the academy, we have a soaring program here. People can learn to fly airplanes without engines. I said, my goodness, tell me about that. They said, well, you'll see them in the sky on good days where one plane is towing another up to 10,000 feet and then lets it go, and uh, then they just soar their way back to the ground, just floating on air. So I asked, well, how many people have died like that? 
And they said, well, none in our program. We stress safety. I said, well, then I would like to try it. And so I got signed up and uh, went uh, to the airstrip, and I looked over the glider, and sure enough, there's not even an engine in it. There's two seats, and uh, the person, there was a person's name on the, the side of the plane. And so I said, well, who is that? And he said, well, that's me. And I looked at this young pilot. He's younger than my children. So I wonder, can I really trust him? Does he really know what he's doing? I mean, I was feeling more chicken than eagle at that point, honestly. And, you know, he's so young. So I asked him, why is your name on the plane? And he said, well, I've won the contest for flying the furthest without any engine. I said, well, how far did you glide? He said, 245 miles. I said, oh, I guess he could probably get me then where, uh, you know, to the ground safely. So got in the plane, the two seats, uh, the, the pilot sits in the second seat, the, the, the newbie sits up in the front seat, but you still have all the dials, okay? So I'm sitting up there in the front of this plane, they tow us up to 10,000 feet, and suddenly we're cut loose from the tow plane, and it's very quiet. And then the pilot wants to impress me, and so he's doing all these maneuvers. And I, honestly, I mean, I'm watching the dials. We did more than three Gs, and I'm feeling this knot of fear or something in my belly. And, you know, we're losing altitude like crazy, and he's doing these curly cues and these turns, and he yells, hey, do you want to try it? I'll let you take the controls. I mean, we're going around and around, and I'm going, well, first I'd like to know, how do we go back up? Because the ground, I thought, was getting pretty close. And he says, oh, that's easy. And the next thing I knew, he had caught a, a thermal, and they were corkscrewing our way back up to 10,000 feet. And he explained, I could have taken it higher if it was just me, but with, with a, a, a guest on board, I'm only allowed to go to 10,000 feet. Phew, I said, how'd you do that? And, and he explained thermals and other stuff and, and what he thought was just naturally there, which, of course, as a chaplain, I knew, well, God created, God provided all those things. Psalm 103 verse 5 says, God satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Isaiah 40, 31 says, those who wait for the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings as eagles. They will run and not be weary. They will walk and not faint. And I realized as we're in this plane, suddenly when we're back at 10,000 feet, uh, the knot of fear in my gut is gone. I mean, if we're not going to die in a crash... If it's safe, if our pilot knows how to navigate and be renewed and refreshed and, and reinvigorated, I don't have to worry at all. I can just enjoy this ride. So all of a sudden, I'm looking over the edge. I can see the academy, the famous chapel that's down there. Hey, look, over there, there's the Garden of the Gods. Why, that's Pike's Peak with the snow on it. And down there's Colorado Springs. And over there's Monument. And we're looking all around. And I'm asking him questions. And finally, somebody barked through the radio. When are you coming back down? You're supposed to be 30 minutes, and you're already at 45. And I heard our pilot say, well, you told me to impress this old VIP colonel. And he's asking a lot of questions. They said something to the effect, you've done it, get back down here. <laughs> and so we headed to the ground. Look what God says. I bore you on eagle's wings. I brought you to myself. I got you. I got you. Deuteronomy 32, 11 says, God is like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them up on its pinions. God says, I've got you. I'm taking care of you. You, don't, you get to fly. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be chicken. I'm here to watch over you and to protect you and guide you. Fly. Don't be like a chicken. Be an eagle. Fly. 
Look at he says in verse 5, therefore now, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you will be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you will speak to the people of Israel. Well, let me ask you today, what is your most treasured possession? Doesn't matter how much you have or don't have. What's your most treasured possession? Something that you have. I'm guessing if you've been divorced, it's not your wedding ring from your first, from your first spouse. Even though they made promises, even though it was worth something, if somebody broke your heart, they, it's no longer your treasured possession. You know, there was a snot-faced girl in college, and well, well, things didn't work out, and you only know my side of the story, but we found out that we weren't getting along. We only had one thing in common. We both loved her. <laughs> what do you value most? Of all the things God has given you, what do you value most? It, it probably isn't the most expensive thing you own, but it has sentimental value. It, it's probably irreplaceable. In fact, if you thought about your greatest treasure, it probably isn't even an it. Your treasure is probably a person, a relationship. And God is saying in this, I choose you. Choose me. God's saying, I own it all, and if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be my greatest treasure. What could possibly be more precious than that? To be God's treasured possession. God wanted these people to be a kingdom of priests, not just to have priests, but to be a kingdom of priests. Did you notice when they celebrated the Passover, when God gave his instruction to take the sacrificial lamb and to kill it and to take its blood and put it over the doorpost, that, that was required of every man of every household, not just the priests. He wanted them to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, the ones of all the world that he treasured as his own and that they shared God's love with the world. And they missed it. They missed it. Well, here in Exodus, as it's just being laid out, it says, Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We promise. All the Lord has spoken, we will do. They say it three times in this passage. The people agreed to God's covenant. We had a beautiful wedding here this week, standing on this very spot, the bride and groom who've loved each other, who've wanted to walk according to God's word, who've remained pure, who had, were making promises to each other. They, it, was, it was beautiful. It was precious. The promises they made in a moment will take the rest of their life to live out. These people of God that are heard the word of God from Moses and said, all the Lord has spoken, we will do. They had the best of intentions. They said the right words. They were gathered in worship. They were in front of God. They're saying the right thing. But then in the day-to-day, -day, when they didn't realize, I'm, I'm having a test, I'm having a pop quiz, that in the, in the process... They just didn't obey God's word. When the rubber hit the road, they didn't keep his covenant. They drifted away from him. They didn't keep their promise. They needed something more. 
Moses, it says, reported the words of the people to the Lord, and the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. And here is what God gave Moses. There's quite a bit, actually, if you read Exodus 20, 21, 22, 23, and the, and the rest of the books of the law. Uh, and he gave them the Ten Commandments as a summary. And the Ten Commandments really reads like a business contract between partners. It's not a, a slave master dictating to a slave. It's God saying, now that you're free, now that you're a partner, you can choose me or not choose me. If we're going to work together, here's what you will do and here's what you will not do. Let's look at them in summary. These are found in Exodus chapter 20. In fact, they're going to be up on the screen. Let's read this scripture together. Are you ready? I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet. Now, there are ten commandments. And the first four deal directly with our relationship with God. They're in the vertical relationship between us and God. The other six deal with our relationships with each other and how we treat one another. And you can't really pull them apart People have tried to omit the first ones and keep the horizontal ones, but it just doesn't work. I mean, these Ten Commandments are the basics of ethics, and they give boundaries to morality. And the Ten Commandments are not hard to understand. I mean, we, even though we've had whole sermons on each one, but they seem impossible for anybody to live by them 100% of the time. Nobody has been able to keep them. We need something more. Well, let's look how God and Moses and the people ratified the covenant between them. Verse chapter 24, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning. He built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. He sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and he read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and he threw it on the people and he said, behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with the, all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet as it were a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God. And they ate and they drank. They had this little meal to seal the deal. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandments which I have written for their instruction. God gave Israel his standards or expectations. They, that was what forged them into a nation, one nation under God. They listened to the Lord. They sacrificed to the Lord. They made promises to keep his word and be obedient, and they saw God, and they ate and they drank together. 
Sadly, the people agreed with their lips, but their lives told a different story. Clearly, the law set a standard which could not be attained and sustained by man. They needed something more. Do you know what they needed? They needed God's grace. They needed forgiveness. They needed a way to start over fresh. And God knew that. And so he sent Jesus into this world. So the covenant with Moses was good. It set the standard. It set out God's expectation. But the covenant with Moses was not eternal. It was not final. It was not enough. There was one more covenant to come, the new covenant established by Jesus Christ himself, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Here's how the writer to uh, the Hebrews compared these two covenants, and he kind of puts them on two mountains. The first is Mount Sinai. He says, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If a beast touches the mountain, it should be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. So those are all found in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, Deuteronomy, telling the story of them being at Mount Sinai. It says, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect or complete, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Jesus established a new covenant of grace. He shared it with the disciples. They shared a meal together. He asked them to repeat it forever to remember him. We're doing that today. If you know the Lord, you are welcome at his table. Jesus' covenant of grace was not first for one nation at one time. It is universal. He offered it to every man, woman, boy, and girl. It's intended for everyone at every time of every age. So I want to look then at the passage where Paul tells this story. It says, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. The people agreed to the covenant. They had the best of intentions. They said the right words. All the Lord has spoken, we will do. We will be obedient. And so the disciples took the bread and they took the cup and they honored the Lord. I mean, he chose us, all who have done this, as his special possession. We're more precious to him than everything else that he's created. And he covered us with his blood and he fills us with his Holy Spirit. And he forgives our sin each time we ask. And he empowers us to be his people and to do his work. So we gather at his table basically to seal the meal, seal the deal with this little meal. We celebrate Jesus, our Savior. Shall we pray? Dear God, we come before you and we thank you that you were working way back there in Exodus to set people free. And that you were working in Jesus Christ the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that you were broken for us so that we might be made whole, that your blood was poured out that we might be covered. 
And Lord, if that's you calling us, give us a good word. We thank you for Jesus and for what he sacrificed. Amen.